Please pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you on this special day for mothers. We are grateful, Lord, for their faithful witness to us. Lord, some are already in heaven, and we thank you that they are safe there and not suffering in any way. Uh, Father, others are uh, in this room, and we thank you for their presence because we are challenged and convicted by the lives they live. Still others are beyond our reach this morning. They are out of our touch, but not out of our thoughts, and never out of your care. So we thank you for them, and we trust, O God, that you will guide us in all that we do. Lord, may we honor you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I've been thinking about maternal instinct this week, thinking about my mom's maternal instinct. She's this wonderful lady who uh, bakes sheet cakes and decorates them and makes quilts and makes clothes and uh, makes crafts. And she's just a very gifted and artistic and loving and caring person. But woe be unto you if you try to harm one of her children. It is an amazing instinct that comes out in her. And I saw it occasionally when I was a child. And I was always amazed by that. I suspect she's not alone. That there are other moms who are fiercely protective of their kids in this room. And fathers as well. And I wondered how we steward our parental instincts not only for the maximum benefit of our kids, but also for the larger concern of the kingdom of God, which is the higher priority. John Ortberg introduced me to uh, psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who offered this hypothetical exercise. He said, what if, um, what if you were given a script of your kids' lives and you received an eraser and you could edit that script? You could take out anything that you didn't like in that script. And you discovered that when your child was old enough to go to elementary school, that your child had difficulty reading. What came easily to other children was difficult for your child. That when they got to high school, they had a good group of friends, but one of those friends was diagnosed with cancer and died. And your kid got into the college that he or she wanted to get into. And when she got there... There was a car accident and uh, an injured leg and a deep depression. Afterward, your kid got the job that they wanted, a good job, but in an economic downturn, does this sound familiar, they lost that job. Later they were married, and later there was a separation and the pain of that. And you have an eraser, and you can take out anything from that script that you want to. Wouldn't you be tempted? Wouldn't we be tempted to take out every twinge of pain that our kids would ever experience lest they dash their foot against a stone? We would want to protect them at all costs. I am part of a generation of parents that they call helicopter parents. Helicopter parents because we we swoop in We swoop in when there's a relational or educational or sports concern. We're the ones who come in to the rescue because we don't want our children to ever hurt in any way. And we might be tempted, but but I wonder if we took away every pain that our children experience. 
would they then become better and stronger and more generous people? Thankfully, we don't have an eraser. We can't change the script of their lives just however we want to. But it's interesting that our Heavenly Father, when He sent His only Son into the world, possessed that very kind of power. He could have spared His Son any pain whatsoever, and yet He allowed Him to walk up that hill called Golgotha, carrying a cross on His back, knowing they were going to nail Him to that tree, because His greater purpose for the world involved the suffering of His Son. Would you open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 25 to 35. I'm also going to be looking at John, chapter 19. We'll look at the beginning of Jesus' life and the end of His life. And we're going to think about raising perfect children. Let's stand together to read the Word of the Lord today. Luke, chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And then in John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, at the end of Jesus' life, it says... Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. You may be seated. So it must have been a magnificent moment when Mary and Joseph took Jesus into the temple to fulfill what the law required. They were there to dedicate their son. And they knew something about him. They knew, for instance, from the angel that this was no ordinary child, that this child had been predicted in history past by the prophets, that his birth had been supernaturally conceived and that he had a great purpose as the Messiah of Israel. They knew, but they must have wondered, does anybody else here know? Does anybody else here understand the great plan that God has for our son, that out of all the children ever born, God has chosen that this son of ours will be the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And sure enough, they went into the temple and there were others there who knew. There was Anna who uh, 
this wonderful prophetess who proclaimed God's message, who'd been waiting and watching. And when she saw Jesus, she told everybody, he is the one that we've been waiting for. And there was Simeon. I imagine him wandering around with spittle in his beard, looking at all the children because God has promised that he will see the consolation of Israel. And when he sees Jesus, he just raises his hands in the air and says, I can die in peace. This is the salvation of the world. I don't think he tried to temper his tone. Salvation is here. The Son of God has come. And he was dramatic, I am sure. And he blesses Mary and Joseph and then looks right into Mary's eyes and says, people are going to talk bad about your son. Isn't that a terrible thing to say to a mom on the day that she's dedicating her, her child to the Lord? People are going to say bad things about your son. And a sword is going to pierce your own soul too. You may wonder what I say to these young families when they come to the front and the microphone is off. I can assure you, it's nothing like that. I never say to them, do you know what you're in for? People are going to mistreat your kids. They're going to be awful to them. And you're, there's not a thing you can do about it. It's going to be horrible. I never say that. I, I think about when I'm over at Memorial City and I walk by that window where they place the little babies in array, you know. And What if a person just stood there and waited for the parents to come out and say, Wow, do you know what you've gotten yourself into? This is going to be really bad. I mean, who says something like that? But it came true. A sword will pierce your own soul too. When did that happen to Mary? Well, in John chapter 19, when her son was stretched out on that cross and that spear pierced his side and blood and water flowed out, didn't the point of the arrow go all the way through her soul? And I wonder when I read this this week, didn't she want to do something to protect her son? Wouldn't she have stood in the way of the Roman soldier? Who do you think wins? The Roman army or a mom? I don't know. I mean, that's a tough one. But I guess the Roman army wins, but they know they've been in a fight, right? And here is Mary who would have done anything to protect her son. But at the end of the day, all she can do is stand by the cross. And she's not alone because there are other disciples there. In fact, the word disciple is prominent because Jesus had said in John chapter 12, I'm going to the cross and whoever wants to be my disciple will have to join me there because that's where I'm going to be found on the cross. And that's where my disciples will be. And John is there for his moment in history, this beloved disciple to do what God has called him to do. And we can't really be where God wants us to be. And at the same time, avert all pain in our lives and our children's lives. I mean, we would like to, but hear me when I say this morning, God's great purpose for my kids' lives and your kids' lives and our grandkids' lives, God's great purpose for their lives is not protection. That's, I, I know that surprises you, but it's not. His great purpose for their lives is perfection. He is trying, Romans chapter 8 says, to conform all of us to the image of His Son. And for that to happen, we will have to endure. What does it say? God works all things together, good and bad things. He works all things together for good, for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. 
And God wants to perfect our children. He wants us. What did he say in the Sermon on the Mount? Be perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. And you may protest and say, but I know my kids and my kids are not Jesus and they don't have to be like Jesus. But you'll have to admit to me that that's the ultimate goal. God is trying to make them like Jesus. And my mother with her nine grandsons and now two granddaughters will say from time to time, all, she never said this about her four sons, but all of my grandchildren are perfect. And I always think, not really. Not yet. Not this side of heaven. And in a Bill Cosby sense, that could be today if they don't straighten up. I mean, they're not perfect yet. But I know that's who God wants them to be. And there's this instinct within us. Aren't we tempted to protect our children from any possible pain and there are moments when I'll just say to you you need to protect your kids when when Mary and Joseph came and gave their lives to love Jesus and committed themselves in that way that was a great protection over his life and there was a moment when Joseph kind of wants to bail and in Matthew 1 20 and 21 God says no I need you in that picture I need you there and when I think about the next chapter when Herod says I'm gonna I'm gonna kill baby Jesus and and God says, just get out of Dodge, get down to Egypt, get out of town, because this guy is serious about harming this child. And they protect him. And I said to you back at, at Christmas time, there are forces of evil in our world that are arrayed against the children of this generation, and their intentions are not good. And whatever you have to do to protect your kids from uh, the, the, the perils that face them, perils like, like drug abuse and, and pornography and immorality, whatever you have to do to protect protect them from that evil. I challenge you to do that. And at the same time, I realize that we will not be able finally to shield them from all pain. In fact, there's a picture of, of Mary coming after Jesus. You remember in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, and then later in verses 31 to 35, and they come to take Jesus home because they think he's lost his mind. And it says, they've come to take charge of him. Ma Mary and his brothers are going to take charge of the Lord of the universe. Good luck with that. I think there comes a point in Jesus' life when they can no longer take charge of him because he is taking charge not only of his life, but of the world. But they come and they're overprotective in that sense. Another picture is in Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 to 10, where Sarah has got little Isaac and she's in her 90s and this is the, the son she's waited for and she's named him Laughter because God got the last laugh. And so she's holding little Laughter and Ishmael, the older brother from the slave girl, starts making Isaac cry. And it will not do for Laughter to cry. Little laughter cannot cry. And so Ishmael has to go away. And so they send Ishmael away and Ishmael is left in the wilderness. And it's as if she's saying, I'm going to protect my son from pain at any cost. But I came this morning to say, sometimes that cost is too high. It's sometimes too high for others. And it's sometimes too high for our kids. Sometimes too high for, for others. I think about one of our... Uh, uh, ministers on staff who used to work at a university and he worked in academic support. He got a call one day from a mother who said to him, I need you to wake up my son every day at eight o'clock in the morning. Can you do that for me? And he said, absolutely not. But if you'll come to me for tutoring, I'll help him with that. But I can't wake him up every morning at eight o'clock. And she said, what is your department called? And he said, academic support. And she said, it would support his academics if you would get him up at eight o'clock every morning. Well, she had been in the habit of doing that for him. And now he was on his own and he wasn't doing it for himself. I remember Bruce Winter came to our 
home some years ago, this friend of mine who teaches at, at Cambridge uh, there at Tyndall House, and, and uh, he, he came to our house and spent the night, and uh, that night he came to church with us, and, and one of our sons was just learning to drive, which was perilous, you know, and, and he, he said, I'm going to drive you and Dr. Winter home, and I oh boy, here we go, and you know, white knuckles all the way, we're holding on, and we get to the house, and and our son is, you know, joking with Dr. Winter. And then he says, Bruce says, uh, you know, Graham's going to bed and says he's going to go to bed. And he says, hey, mom, would you wake me up at six o'clock in the morning? And Bruce, who just met our son for the first time, says, if you're old enough to drive, you're old enough to set your own alarm clock. <laughs> and Graham started laughing. He said, no, really, mom, will you, will you wake me up at six o'clock in the morning? <laughs> and Bruce says, no, really, if you're old enough to drive... You're old enough to set your own alarm clock. And Graham says, but what if I oversleep? And he says, well, then you won't get to drive. So get up on time. He's feeling very free. And the first time he's in my house, you know, <laughs> just kind of rearranging the furniture, getting the kids in line, you know, and heaven knows we need help with that. And so thinking about that, I was just reminded that sometimes we think, oh, if we'll just do everything for them and we sort of live our lives vicariously through them. In Scandinavia, they, they, they call them curling parents. You know, that, that very popular sport called curling where they hurl that stone on the ice and then the people get the little brushes, you know, and they're taking and making sure that the stone, they're getting every obstacle out of the way. Some professors in the United States have called them lawnmower parents, you know, those who mow down everything in front of their kids and, you know, write their resumes for them and call the company that doesn't hire them wondering why... How much is too much? Well, if we think we can keep our kids from ever suffering, we misunderstand. In fact, what we can do is not spare them from suffering, but sometimes our work is to share, simply to share in their suffering. And you see that in Mary, don't you? You see that when she is standing there beside the cross because she's not only a mother, she's also a disciple. And a mother who's a disciple wants more than anything. Here it is. The greatest gift we can give to our children is to introduce them to a love relationship with the the Heavenly Father. And Mary has succeeded at that level. And now she is not only the mother, but she's the disciple of her own son. And she can't keep him from the cross because the cross is God's way of accomplishing his purpose. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. That Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Study this this week. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. Jesus learned obedience through suffering so that through Him He might become the source of salvation for the whole world. Jesus couldn't simultaneously avoid suffering and also be the Savior. And our kids cannot finally avoid suffering and also be disciples of Jesus Christ. We can't spare them suffering, but we can share in that suffering. I remember when Melanie was having our two boys and uh, her mother, Joe Freeman, came to be with us and we were all there. And I remember her mom just with tears in her eyes. And I walked over to her and I said, are you okay? And she said, I just wish there were a way I could do this for her, but I can't. Well, there's some things we can't do for our kids. We can't protect them from every pain. We certainly can't protect them from the consequences of the choices they make. But what we can do is a ministry of presence to love them, to stand with them, to encourage them even when they make mistakes, to love them with the love of the Lord and trust that God is working all things together for their good and for our good as we walk with them into that. Listen to what the scriptures say. 
that God uses suffering. So Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope will not disappoint us. It's Hebrews chapter 12 when it says endure hardship as discipline, knowing that as you strengthen your hands and your feeble knees, that God is treating us as sons and daughters and He allows us to go through hardship because He is accomplishing His purpose in us. That must have been what the Heavenly Father was thinking. As John R. W. Stott says, when He allowed His Son to be placed on that tortured, twisted cross and His arms out of joint and blood and water pouring from His side and His mouth so parched that He is dying of thirst for you and for me. And Stott says, and that's the kind of God that I need. The God who did not exempt Himself from our pain, but willingly entered it so that we could be saved. Not saved from pain. Not saved from suffering. But saved through the suffering of Christ and through our own suffering being conformed to the image of God's Son. And that suffering will produce endurance. And endurance will produce character. And character will produce hope. And hope will not disappoint us because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for working in our pain. Thank you that you are more than enough to redeem the suffering in our lives. And I pray, O oh God, that we as disciples who are obsessed with you would not seek a life shielded from pain and difficulty, but would say with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.